Welcome to the Republic of the Rio Grande. Episode 14, Rescuing Zapata. I'm Brandon Seal. When Centralist General Mariano Arista rode into Santa Rita de Morelos on the morning of March 25, 1840, he was exhausted. He and most of his men had been marching nonstop since the morning before, covering something like 40 miles in just 24 hours. But the sight of the sweat-stained hat of the prisoner being brought before him now reminded General Arista what it had all been for. There, in Santa Rita de Morelos, General Mariano Arista looked upon Antonio Zapata in the flesh for the first time. In some way, the two men represented the forces warring for the soul of the new Mexican nation. Zapata's dark skin and distinctively African and mestizo features spoke to his mixed heritage, a heritage that most of the population of Mexico shared. He also represented that revolutionary impulse that insisted that Mexico's independence meant a break from the past, towards something better and something new. By contrast, General Arista was the Creole son of a Spanish colonel, a veteran himself of the War of Mexican Independence, most of which though he had spent in a Spanish uniform. Yet General Arista had come over with Iturbide to the side of Mexican independence and had spent the subsequent 20 years of his career in a uniform trying to preserve that independence and establish some measure of stability for this new nation. Arista represented the spirit of continuity, a spirit that insisted that whatever came after independence for Mexico must respect the traditions that had formed Mexico in the first place. And the irony of this whole situation is that despite their demographic differences, Zapata and Arista shared a similar ideological vision as to how to bring this about in the New Mexico, in theory at least. Which is to say that General Arista was an uncomfortably Federalist general and an otherwise pretty heavily centralist army. And of course, no one had fought more effectively for federalism in Mexico over the previous two years than Antonio Zapata, the prisoner before him. Yet the ideological alignment between Zapata and Arista does more to illustrate just how little ideology moves history and how much more significantly environmental or circumstantial factors do. Arista may have been a federalist, but Arista was born to the class that expected to rule, that engaged in arguments about the nuances of that rule because they had the luxury of assuming that they would always be the ones ruling. And men like Zapata posed a risk to men like Arista particularly when men like Zapata were backed up by hordes of disempowered vaqueros, half-savage Indians, and Texian mercenaries. We don't have the details of this first meeting between General Arista and Zapata on the morning of March 25, 1840, probably because it was a short one. The situation was still pretty touch-and-go. General Arista's 1,400 men were exhausted from their week of forced marching and from the quote-unquote rabid attack that they had endured the previous afternoon from Zapata's longtime commander and would-be savior, Antonio Canales, and what remained of their Rio Grande Federalist Army. And though General Arista's Centralist Division outnumbered the Rio Grande Federalists now more than two to one, the affection that the Federalist rank and file felt for Zapata, Vaquero, Carrizo Indian, and Texian, was a force multiplier, to use a modern term. And Arista knew that the Federalists would not, could not, simply allow Zapata to be taken away from them. They would fight, which meant that a second battle was imminent. 
Antonio Canales, presumably, hadn't slept much the night before either. His scouts must have picked up on the arrival of General Arista with his additional 700 men. Figuring in casualties now from the day before, Canales was actually outnumbered by more like 3 to 1 now, probably even more so in terms of artillery. These were abysmal odds, particularly without his most capable commander to lead from the front. And yet, Canales knew that he had to fight, which gives the lie a little bit to some later detractors' perceptions of him as afraid to fight. Early on the morning of that same March 25th, just as General Arista and his centralist reinforcements were shaking the dust off their boots, Antonio Canales ordered his men into battle formation. The mounted vaqueros on the flanks, the Texian volunteers and Carrizo Indians in the center, just as they had done the same way the day before. We don't know if he gave any sort of stirring speech. He probably didn't need to. His men knew what was at stake. Their ideological movement. Their beloved Zapata. Their undefended homes back along the Rio Grande. Just as soon as he finished up his interview with Zapata, General Arista formed up his men just outside of Santa Rita de Morelos, opposite Canales's waiting Federalist force. At such odds, General Arista would have been forgiven for thinking that simply a show of force would have been enough to dissuade Canales from his plan. And initially, at least, Canales did not attack, but he gave no signs of pulling back either. Since he commanded the numerically superior force, and not wanting to let this opportunity slip away, Arista decided to order his men forward, methodically and supported by artillery, closing the gap slowly in the lines. And as the centralists closed in, Canales and his men couldn't restrain themselves. Frontiersmen always made for poor set-piece soldiers. Instead of waiting for the centralists to come to them the rest of the way across no man's land, the Federalists broke their lines and charged. The centralists halted, presented arms, and fired, mowing down the front ranks of the Federalists. The Federalists returned fire sporadically and in a disorganized fashion and kept coming, the two lines now closing in on each other. Canales led his men that day in a way that would have made Zapata proud. Rabidly, ferociously, at all times at the hottest part of the action. J.J. Gallegos, a biographer of Antonio Zapata, renders the battle scene well, slightly abridged as follows. Quote, the Texan adventurers and the Carrizo Indians fought valiantly and bitterly to the last man, refusing to surrender. Most perished. The government deserters who had joined the rebels also offered a fierce resistance, fighting with bayonet and fuego de metralla, techniques learned under government service. Even the cavalry dismounted to fight. Such was the decision to fight that day. Arista, in his words, never imagined or anticipated the vigor with which the Federalists would sustain their resistance, compelling him to initiate a cavalry charge after one hour of fierce fighting. The cavalry charge finally decided the action in favor of the government, driving the insurgents to flee. The rebels protected their retreat by setting fire to the tall, dry prairie grass, and soon an inferno of burning grass and chaparral propagated uncontrolled in a terrible manner, consuming both government and Federalist wounded that were strewn throughout the battlefield. End quote. At the Battle of Morelos, as this battle would come to be called, Rio Grande Federalist gallantry was no match for centralist discipline. About 150 Rio Grande Federalists were captured that day, 
out of 450 or so fit for service that morning. The prairie fire consuming the 200 Federalists dead and wounded, including more than 30 Carrizos, was the perfect metaphor for the day, and the only thing allowing Canales and the few dozen Federalist survivors to escape the field. General Arista's Centralist division wasn't unbloodied. Their casualties were maybe half of what the Federalists were. But then again, they had a lot more men to give, and at the end of the day, they controlled the field. And plus, after the Battle of Morelos, the flower of the youth of the Federalist Rio Grande Villas had just been reduced to ashes. Antonio Canales fled with what little remained of his army back to Texas, and General Arista's press release wasn't far behind him. Arista, ever the PR expert, sent notice to every newspaper between Mexico City and Houston, announcing his victory and announcing that the famed and feared Antonio Zapata was his prisoner now, and that Zapata would stand trial for treason, his sweaty hat and all. On March 28th, 1840, General Arista called to order the court-martial of Antonio Zapata. Centralist officers served as judge, prosecuting attorney, and even as Zapata's defense attorney, none others being present or available. The charge, as I mentioned, was treason, but in particular, his most egregious crime was his alliance with the Texian adventurers. Quoting General Arista here, quote, the most terrible, the unpardonable for the nation was in betraying the fatherland by bringing foreigners, allying himself with the Texans and fighting in union with them against Mexican troops, end quote. Witnesses were called from Zapata's own men. Interestingly, the two men that were called were mulatos, like Zapata, born in the Villas del Norte, and even more coincidentally, both, like Zapata, had lost grandfathers in the terrible Apache raids of 1790. It's a window into the kind of men who were following Zapata, and a reminder of what was so terrifying about Zapata's uprising to the ruling classes in central Mexico. These two witnesses testified that yes, they had been fighting alongside Texian adventurers, something of course which they couldn't deny because at least two of these Texians had been captured with Zapata a few days before in the plaza. But these two compañeros of Zapata categorically denied that they were fighting for Texas, or for any foreign government for that matter. Next, Zapata himself was called to the stand. He was asked if he understood the charges against him. Yep, he replied. Are you fighting for any foreign government, they asked him. Only federalism, he responded. Did you fight alongside Texians? Absolutely, Zapata responded, unflinchingly and without qualification, refusing to betray his men, even when it threatened his life. The prosecution then called their own witnesses, officers from the Centralist Army who unsurprisingly confirmed the very undisputed fact that there had been quote-unquote foreigners, which is to say Texans, in the Rio Grande Federalist Army. After a few more hours of this, the trial came to a close. A jury, if you can call it that, of seven Centralist officers withdrew to deliberate. But they were gone for much longer than anyone had expected. Several hours passed. It seems that at least one of the officers on the jury opposed convicting Zapata. Perhaps this dissident juror noted that there were quite a few foreigners serving in the Centralist Army, though these were mostly Europeans, which for some reason was less threatening. Perhaps instead he noted that Zapata could be of immense utility to the central government as an Indian fighter. The frontier remained a dangerous place, 
And perhaps keeping Zapata at the helm of the defense of these frontier communities could go some way toward regaining Borderlanders' loyalty to the state. Or maybe, and here's me just making stuff up really, maybe that officer had been instructed by General Arista to hold out long enough for Arista to proposition Zapata. General Arista certainly appreciated, and had always appreciated, Antonio Zapata's utility. And he knew that a living, compromised, or even allied Zapata was worth much more than a dead one. And so, Arista pulled Zapata aside while the jury was out for deliberations, and he made him an offer. He told Zapata that he would pardon him, give him his life, let him return to his four daughters in Guerrero if he would just do one thing for him. All he had to do was lay down his arms and renounce federalism. Look at me, General Arista might have pointed out to Zapata. I'm a federalist at heart too, I get it. But for federalism or centralism or any of it to work, we've got to have peace in this country. Go back to your home, to your beloved Guerrero, and fight for federalism there, in the newspapers or in the state house or in the capital, por Dios. Frankly, you can save a lot of destruction and a lot of men's lives, including your own, if you'll just play along. Didn't your compañero Canales teach you this? Actions are noble for sure, but politics is the realm of words, and a man can make himself say anything. Quote, shoot me then, end quote, Zapata responded. Continuing, quote, I will never lay down my arms until the rights of my people are addressed, end quote. And to make sure that Arista had understood him, Zapata clarified that he, Zapata, quote, would never lay down his arms as long as he was at liberty, end quote. So after having studied Antonio Zapata for some time now, I've come to imagine him, right or wrong, as a nearly perfectly integrated man. By which I don't mean to imply that he was a perfect man or anything of the sort, he clearly wasn't. But that he was a man who was perfectly comfortable with what he was and who he was. He was complete at every moment that he was incapable of doing something inconsistent with himself, which is really quite a thing. I've been around very few people like this in my life, not many, but when you meet these people, you just know, and they draw you towards them with their wholeness. This, anyway, is how I explain the magnetism that he clearly had, the spell that he could cast even on Anglo-Texians who didn't speak his language. It's rare to find men in the history books, much less in the history books of South Texas, that are so universally acclaimed by their friends and their enemies, by Texians, Mexicans, and Native Americans alike. It tells you that there must have been something to this man, who otherwise remains a bit of an enigma to us, because mostly we only know about him from the accounts of others. Zapata wasn't giving General Arista much to work with, however. You get the sense that maybe even Arista had come under Zapata's spell, or at the very least that he didn't really want to kill him. In this strange sense, though, even from his position as a prisoner, Zapata was controlling the course of events in the region. He was leaving General Arista no choice. And so the general shook his head and resigned himself to what would come next. The jury came back with their verdict. They had found Antonio Zapata guilty of treason. The next morning, on Sunday, March 29th, the crews collecting the dead bodies left over from the battle in Santa Rita de Morelos the day before stopped their work and watched a priest ride into town. But they knew he wasn't coming this Sunday morning to say Mass. 
The priest was led to the house where Sapata and his men were being held. Sapata was pulled aside and permitted to give his last confession. The priest then administered last rites. When the sacrament had concluded, Sapata grabbed his sweat-stained hat and walked out into the street where an escort of centralist soldiers awaited him. Is it too melodramatic to try to place ourselves in the mind of Sapata at this moment? What does a condemned man think about in a time like this? About his four daughters back in Guerrero? About his wife, Quien Paz Descanse? About his mother, Maria Antonia? Or maybe he was thinking about his old partner, Antonio Canales. For all of their differences, he and Canales had had a sort of magic to their relationship. Zapata might never have entirely agreed or understood Canales' political scheming, but he had a respect for it, and he could tell that it was its own game with its own logic. Zapata had played his part in this great drama, according to his code, according to the rules as he understood them. Now it was Canales' turn. Maybe, just maybe, the old brush fox had one more trick up his sleeve. Maybe, just maybe, he was orchestrating a rescue attempt at this very moment. Five rifle shots rang out in Santa Rita de Morelos, Coahuila at 10 a.m. on Sunday, March 29, 1840. A sweat-stained hat fell to the ground. On that morning, five nameless centralist soldiers managed to do what no Lipan, no Comanche, no Texian, and indeed no Mexican had ever been able to do for 43 years so far. Extinguish the life of Antonio Zapata. Antonio Canales was nowhere around to hear those shots. But that's because he was already back in Texas, and he hadn't given up the fight yet. On the next episode of The Republic of the Rio Grande. Thank you for listening. In February of 2022, we'll be conducting almost a month's worth of fieldwork to uncover archaeological evidence of the location of the Battle of Medina, the largest battle in Texas history. If you want to learn more about the battle, go back and listen to season two of the series. If you want to learn more about our search and our partnership with the 501c3 American Veterans Archaeological Recovery Project, go to www.brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. The portrait of Antonio Zapata that serves as the cover art for this season was created by artist Matt Tumlinson. Check him out at Matt underscore Tumlinson on Instagram. Sound engineering for this episode was performed by Stephen Bennett, who also arranged and performed the theme music. The theme music was actually written, however, by Mercurio Martinez, a Zapata County rancher, county treasurer, school principal, and descendant of one of Escandon's founding families. Martinez was the co-author of the first history of Zapata County, which he titled The Kingdom of Zapata. And in his spare time, he penned Corridos, well, I found one of his corridos in his collected papers at Texas A&M's Cushing Library, and in that corrido, Martinez had written a melody that he had intended for his Corrido de la Presa, the story of the construction of Lake Falcón and of his role in preserving what he could of the communities later lost to the lake. I love that we've been able to bring back to life this melody here, and I thank Stephen for it. You can check out Stephen's work at Noso Media. That's N-O-S-O-Media.com. I want to call out here for recognition the work of Juan Jose Gallegos. A retired NASA engineer, Gallegos went back to get a master's in history from the University of Houston and produced an incredible thesis dedicated to the life of Antonio Zapata, 
which in part inspired this season. Thanks as well to Professor Stan Green at Texas A&M University in Laredo. Professor Green actually has a book coming out soon about these events and others, currently titled Las Vías del Norte, A History from 1748 to 1821. Definitely don't miss the Museum of the Republic of the Rio Grande in downtown Laredo if you're ever there. They have brand new exhibits that they've just opened telling more of the story that we're recounting here. And if you're interested in the history or genealogy of the Vías del Norte, check out Moises de la Garza's website, lasviasdelnorte.com. Thanks additionally to Cesarino Hosa, my touring buddy for these old towns in Mexico, and descendant himself of some of the first founders of the Lower Rio Grande. And thank you to Javier Cervantes with the Tatpilan Coahuilpecan Nation, and Juan Mancias with the Carrizo Come Crudo Nation for their guidance too. For more information generally, check out our website at www.brandonseal.com. <laughs>